Welcome to the Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast, Episode 5, 2021 Look Ahead. The Gutenberg Deep Dive Podcast is your monthly review of a best-selling novel from 100 years ago. I'm Mike, and with my co-host John, we're going to be exploring these literary gems. Unlike previous episodes, we're not going to be discussing a single author or giving the quick plot summary. No, today we're going to be looking at a list of upcoming books for the year talk about our expectations, and tie those into our views on books from this period, previous books that we've read, as well as how we think things have evolved the last five months while we've been doing this podcast. So let's get started. Mike, I uh, hold up the list of the uh, next 10 books. These are the best sellers from 2021. By my count, we'll probably be reading nine of them, and I'll explain why we're cutting out one of them when we get there. I think what we're going to do is I'm just going to name the books, tell you at least what I've read about them. I did not want to read the full summary. I want to go into most of these books not knowing where the plot's going to go. So when I found a summary, I only read the first half. In some cases, I just kind of read somebody's comments about the book just to get an idea about what we're getting ourselves into. And uh, in some cases, we're really getting ourselves into some trouble here where we are not the intended readers of these books, but that's okay. Because that's what we do here on this podcast. We look at books from 100 years ago that we were clearly not the intended audience because we wouldn't be born for another 60 years. <laughs> Although some of them are very foresighted. Yeah. I mean, and as many good books can be, as well as some may be timeless. Some of them may be awful. I, I don't know. You know, I, I was talking to a good friend of mine and he's like, so are you reading the classics? And I, and I pointed out though, that most of the time classics are not the bestsellers. That's right. Bestsellers are books that were really aimed at the audiences of the time to sell mass quantities, not necessarily to make a point, although I'm sure some did. But in many cases, the classics you read had a, a slow burn at, at first and then gained following as time went on. These were really more of the pop fiction kind of items that can kind of burn fast, sell a lot of books, and then are forgotten the next year. In, in some cases, I am sure we're going to find stuff that we've heard of. In fact, we're going to find a couple, I, I expect, uh, you know, award-winning books as we go through this. Um, in fact, I think the first book, the number one bestseller of the year was an award-winning book, and that book is uh, Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. It's a book about a, a young girl. She goes to college. She has pretty high-minded ideals. Marries a doctor, moves out to a small town, and tries to, in, in her mind, raise up the town out of its more rural pastimes and traditions, and gets very frustrated by that. Probably rightfully so, is my guess. I, I, I've only read the first 30 or 40 pages of the 600 pages it's going to be, so I've got a little more of a slog to meet my deadline on that one. But it, it was an award-winning book. And, and I'm really excited to kind of kick the year off that. Again, that, that's Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. And we'll have a link to that at the end of this podcast, or at least in the description, I should say. Yeah. And I've got to say, I'm really looking forward to this. I love Sinclair Lewis. <clears throat> I read Babbitt, which is one of the classics of the genre at the time. He wrote another book called It Can't Happen Here. Sinclair Lewis was this tremendous author at the time. He was incredibly well-respected. There was all sorts of stuff about him getting the Pulitzer and turning down the Pulitzer and all these other things that go into it. The fact of the matter is, he is this window into a particular time that I think really gets to the core of what you and I are doing with this podcast series, where it's not just a product of the pop lit that we've been talking about. It's also a reflection on that. In some ways, it's kind of a meta pop lit because it itself became so popular and Sinclair Lewis became a brand. So I know a little bit about him. I've never read this book. I'm really looking forward to this. 
Me too. So so that will be our February episode. I don't know the order we'll do the other books in, but in February, we're going to be discussing Main Street. Very excited about that. Next book on my list, the number two bestseller, The Brimming Cup by Dorothy Canfield. My understanding of this book is that it's a housewife who watches her kids leave for school. And so her life goes from being focused on taking care of the kids to suddenly having a lot of time on her hands and makes her analyze What's her real role as a wife and a mother when it's only becomes a halftime job? And part of that, I guess she starts to look around and perhaps notices some rather handsome gentlemen in the area who she could spend some time with. That's my understanding of the book. I don't know where to go from there. Probably not the target audience, this book. And and, and I'll say when I saw this, I, I was after reading what Main Street was going to be about, I'm like, I don't know if 1921 is going to be all about disappointed women and the life choices they make. <laughs> I hope it's not. But that's what this book is about. I don't know when we'll review this book, but that's the brimming cup. Yeah. And you know, I, I something I know we're going to get to in a little bit, but I have this feeling reading these books of impending doom coming down on us because there's so much more that we know about the history at the time. And when you see things like this, you know, she's trying to figure out her way in the world and her role in the world. All I keep picturing are the pictures of the next five years, the next 10 years after this, and how dramatically I imagine this fictional person's life will change, uh, especially after the reassessment of marriage and so on. So it's in some ways, it's good to see this little last gasp before things change so much in the country. In some other ways, yeah, we are... We may not be the audience for this, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I like to try and get out of my head sometimes. So hopefully we'll be able to do that with this. The third best-selling book of 1921, we will not be reading. It's The Mysterious Writer by Zane Gray. And I'm not going to say that he's a bad author because he has a huge following. I'll say that I can only support an author who takes pictures of his naked cousin so often before I feel I have to move on to another author to give my time to. So Zane Gray, for those who, who haven't listened to our previous episodes, I'll, I'll just let you comment on the fact that he developed the Western genre. But my biggest beef with Zane Gray is he doesn't believe in editing his work. He believes whatever flows off of his typewriter is appearing as it should and therefore leaves it as is. And so many times when I was reading his last book, I said, for love of God, if he just had an editor, this would be so much better book. <laughs> so because we covered him last year, I think we can skip Zane Gray. Now, I happen to peek a little bit of a head. And as we move ahead throughout the next decade, Zane Gray has a bestseller all but one year in the 1920s. So don't worry. If anyone comments and they really want to hear again about a Zane Grey novel, you'll have your chance in 2022. By then, I'll have recovered from reading uh, his last book, and I'll be ready to do it again. Mike, what do you think? Okay, okay. Zane Grey is an enormous creep. This guy is a creep. <laughs> He's a solid, flat creep. He's funky. I do not like him as a human being. I'm glad eventually we may get back to read one of his books because they're inescapable. It's like rotating around a black hole. Yes, you can see stuff outside, but you'll never escape. However, wow, did I not like that guy. And you know, John, because we've talked about it, how in a lot of ways, now that I'm doing these little author snippets, my skin just kind of crawls occasionally as I'm reading about some of these folks. And he was the very first one that just stuck out to me that I was having a hard time getting through the more I learned about him. In a way, I can't wait for when we do it again. And in another more real way, I'm glad I don't have to take a shower after <laughs> we do our review. 
still not the worst author we discussed. Oh, I, no. I will. <laughs> not by far. <laughs> That's where we are. <laughs> All right. So fourth bestseller of 1921 was The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Now, this was actually originally published as four parts. It was serialized as, as I guess, novellas, and then they combined them all and sold it as, as one big book. Again, it's going to be a, a high society. It's going to have I don't use the term romance, but I think it's more like marriage challenges. You look, you see a uh, semi um, arranged marriage. It's a good marriage for for a rich gentleman, but then he doesn't really love her as much as he should. But he does like her sister or her cousin. I was a little confused by some of the comments, but so so it's going to be some love triangle work there, along with I think some discussion of high society and the desires of society to rebalance who should be in high society and where they belong and what they do. I don't know how I feel about it. I'm almost positive I've heard of this book before, but I've obviously never read it. We'll see where we get with that and where that matches in. This was actually one of my top contenders to begin the year with because the author won the Pulitzer. And so I thought, okay, you're talking about a serious author, so I want to read a work by a serious author. So we'll see where this falls in line. Again, we are probably not the target audience, especially for the serialized novels, but I'm sure that it was well-written because the author is a well-known author and awarded. You know, I'm I'm really interested in this myself. I've noticed that this Pulitzer is a theme, especially among this year. There's there's a few who whether are nominated or did receive it or turned it down in some cases. And I was interested to read a, just a little bit about her. Little side note about me. So I love reading about FDR and understanding where he came from. And this kind of stemmed out of me being Irish, Al Smith in New York and FDR running for governor and Al Smith running for president and FDR running for president. Long story short, I always wondered about FDR's accent. And the thing with FDR is that he was raised in this extremely insular area in high society uh, along the East Coast of the United States. And this was such a, a rarefied group of people that he spent his time with. It was almost like American nobility. When you listen to FDR, you're hearing this inspirational president and he's talking to the people. But in reality, that was not generally the way he was raised. What she does apparently is pull back the curtain on some of that by virtue of this fiction. And I've got to say, I'm really interested in finding out because apparently she was very spot on. Yes, it's fiction, but only just. So I don't know enough about the book yet. I'm really looking forward to reading it. But look, I'd love for this to be, if not the first, then definitely one of the first. All right. Fifth best-selling book was The Valley of Silent Men by James Oliver Kerwood. He, here's the here's the summary I was able to put together. Jim Kent, a Mountie, lies about killing someone to help get someone else off from a crime while he's convicted and I guess heading to the gallows to to die for someone else's sins, falls in love with a woman, as happens, as we all know, and she breaks him out of jail and they go on the run. So it's got, I guess, some of the romance involved in them falling in love with a lot of adventure of prison break. I don't know what mix it'll be, but that should be an interesting book. And as far as I'm concerned, any book that features a Mountie has got to be one of my favorites. So this guy's a Mountie. I love this already. This can't be anything but good, pure fun, I'm sure. I don't know enough about the author yet. I'm sure James Oliver Kerwood is great uh, and the nicest person ever. I did find out that he had 180 movies made from his books. 
<laughs> Again, another running theme. And he was apparently the highest paid author per word. And I put that in air quotes for all of our listeners by his death in 1927. One thing I did make note of when I read that sentence, how many of these authors were apparently the highest paid author by some weird, quirky description of it? Like I'm the highest paid author among guys named Mike who stubbed their toe on Tuesday morning. He's the highest paid author per word by his death in 1927. I think that's probably a good thing because it means hopefully this is a good action energetic book. But I think it's also a nice change of pace because we've had quite a stream of novels that have not been super action oriented. And I'm really looking forward to reading this. Yeah. Per word is interesting. To, to me, it almost sounds like he wrote the shortest books of all of his peers <laughs> and charged the same thing per book and therefore made the most money. That's how I read it because I used to buy books by how big they were. Because if you remember, especially I read a lot of tour books because that, those were the, the sci-fi fantasy novels and those things would show up at 1100 pages and they were the same they were the same price as these other novels that are only 200 pages why should i not get <laughs> six times as much book for the money and to be fair i learned my lesson with the last robert jordan book i ever read when i stopped reading Wheel of Time, I think in book seven or eight. And I said, I will never read another one of these again until I'm given to it for free because <laughs> it spent like 13 pages with the protagonist out of a thousand pages. And <laughs> while I guess I got my money's worth from a weight standpoint, I did not get my money's worth from an entertainment standpoint. Yeah. And that's only worth it from a weight standpoint if you're using it to lift it and build up your muscles. Going Going at a book like it's a super saver is not a good idea. Yeah, I <laughs> and I think we both learned books. that the same way. <laughs> we learned our lessons. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> All right. The sixth book, and my wife laughed a lot about this when I told her, uh, is called The Seek. It's by Edith M. Hull, and it is the first in a series of novels she wrote with a desert setting setting off the a major revival or perhaps kicking off the genre of desert romance. So you and I will be reading our first official romance novel on this podcast. I'm really excited. In fact, I told my wife, maybe she should be the reviewer and take my place, but I believe she thinks I should go through this process. Maybe she'll join us. We'll see. <laughs> I, think, I think you effectively phrased going through it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be honest, when I read your description, the very first thing I thought of was Lawrence of Arabia. And then when I realized that it was Sandy Romance, I realized it wasn't like Lawrence of Arabia. And now I don't know how much I'm looking forward to this. In fact, I'm really looking forward to this conversation, John. You and I should speak in hushed tones and be very gentle with each other. <laughs> I, when I saw the title, I was actually thinking, you know, there was a lot of interesting politics going on, you know, right before World War One in uh, in those areas of the world. Absolutely. No, no, that's not what this is about. This, this is this, this is a romance. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be like Indiana Jones, that first scene with the plane rocking around, and they found the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> but this goes back to you remember Fifty Shades of Grey is one of the best-selling books of all time, okay? One of the most profitable books of all time. Probably not going to be read by English classes 100 years from now. <laughs> the difference between a bestseller and a good book goes back and forth with who the readers are at the time. So, so are you saying that 100 years hence, someone's going to be – two guys are going to be in front of some – 
crazy visual podcast thing saying we're reading these books from a hundred years ago. And now we're reading 50 shades of gray. What the heck was wrong with those people? <laughs> That's exactly it. They will, they'll be downloading a free copy into their brain where it'll be read to them <laughs> by, the, by the AI that's been injected. And they will just sit there and be forced to listen to Fifty Shades of Grey so that they can discuss it over some intergalactic podcast. That's, that's what it'll be. <laughs> Hopefully with a lot of uh, – what did Star Trek call it? Synthahol. Synthahol. <laughs> <laughs> Get you buzzed without the headache. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Well, and they could and they could immediately recover from you, right? Was that it? That you could that's, be drunk, right. and then they they could, they could put an injection and immediately make you sober. That's why they allowed officers to drink synthahol. Uh, so let's hope. Not that I've watched much Star Trek, <laughs> but we both know it shouldn't be Romulan ale because that would be no. against the rules. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> All right. So the next book I have is A Poor Wise Man by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. I, I, I don't I don't I don't even know what I wrote down here. From a, from a, I could not find a good summary of this. I was wondering how you were going to describe. It. So so on the on the upside, this woman, so Mary Roberts Reinhardt, uh, has been described as uh, America's Agatha Christie. So she was very whodunit sort of genre. Um, this particular book, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't find a whole lot in terms of the summary on that either. I'm hoping it's interesting. And if she really is like Agatha Christie, I think you can get right into it. But I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it read, as I was trying to figure out what it was, it read like the protagonist grows up in a rich family and then thinks she's too privileged. So she goes off and does some stuff with the red cross. And then she comes back to some other stuff with some other people. And then she meets some interesting people. And then she becomes a supporter of middle-class causes. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I'm not even sure I could follow any of that. So, so I have no idea where we're going to get into with that one. We're going to read it. And I guess we'll find out. Maybe, or it's just that scattered and it just sold well because she's a well-known author of the time. I don't know. And you'll have to tell me when you do your author review, why this book was what it was. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> no guarantees. <laughs> okay. So our next book, Her Father's Daughter by Jean Stratton Porter. I think I'm saying that right. Here's one thing I caught right away while I was reading it. Many comments that basically it's the most racist book of the year. So it's going to have a ton. People are like, even for the time, it was super heavy on racism. It's going to be, again, another book with a very strong female protagonist. And she's going to go ahead and learn some life lessons and deal with the passing of her family and then spend some money on some causes. I'm not sure where it goes. Everyone's just like, uh, pretty good book. A lot of racism. Just tons of racism. So I'm sure we will have to... uh have some caveats on that one and probably had that'll be probably the primary discussion of it. Yeah. And you know, I'm glad that you mentioned this again, we're going to cover this a little bit at the end, but I have been dreading in some ways, any of these books, uh, because I'm afraid that there's going to be something like that in them. And so far, certainly there has been what I would call casual racism expressed in some of these areas. And at best, there have been some sort of questions of questionable descriptions of ethnicity in some ways, but there hasn't been anything I've felt that's really come out and just hit you in the face. So the thing is, that was part of my expectation at the time. 
to the extent that it came up in the literature, you have to wonder when this is going to rear its ugly head. So maybe this is the one. And my hope is that we take the shot and get through it. I will note this author too reminds me in some ways of Zane Grey. So I've got a little bit of trepidation here. (laughs) She's this naturalist, everything for her. Let me write about nature. Let me incorporate it into my books. Let me talk about the, the romance of it. And so much of her life was focused on that into to such a exclusive view of the world. I do wonder if that contributes here, right? If you're so focused on that, you don't care about anything else. You don't care what you say about other things. And maybe we do need to read it with that eye. I actually think it's good. You know, I hope a hundred years hence, when two guys are sitting around downloading all this into their brains, they can look back on our time in the same way and say, wow, that seems really weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm hoping they'll look back and say, man, those guys are such racists. That's, uh, <laughs> I hope that's not what they say. I we're hope that's not what reviewers. you're getting to. <laughs> we're just the podcast reviewers. We're not the authors. <laughs> I, I don't read Michael Creighton and think that guy's a raging racist. But then again, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So book nine, The Sisters-in-Law from my understanding is it's a historic fiction of sorts following a couple of women who are dealing with the fallout from the 1906 San Francisco earthquake and how they deal with that. And then I guess things lead into world war one and goes all the way through, through the armistice to world war one. And so I think it's kind of a couple families, women trying to deal with everything, just falling apart between the earthquake and then leading up to war and going through the war. I think historic fiction where we're going to see, and maybe this is something I was hoping to see a little more often, some tie-in of real historic events going on with fictional characters and how authors maybe in their head were dealing with these issues or writing about their family, just not directly dealing with these historic issues. So I'm excited to read this one a little bit to find out what their take on the causes of World War One and what they felt during those times, because it's very different looking back 100 years, where you look through all the historic documents, and you have this very cool, calm, collected approach to, well, this is clearly how these various treaties fell apart. Whereas this may have a more fresh view of, it was this guy's fault, and these are the emotions we're dealing with. Yeah, you know, I'm, I totally agree with you. I was sort of expecting in some of the novels we've read, to see more of some of the contemporary activities or the relatively recent activities that had happened. You know, you talk about San Francisco and the devastation that occurred there that really wasn't that long before. And you talk about, again, the fire, right? It burned down uh, huge sections of San Francisco, as a matter of fact. And there wasn't a whole lot about World War I in most of the books we read. There were allusions to it and mentions of it, but it wasn't something that seemed to impact it the way I would have expected. Seeing that this is actually specifically called out and that it's a little chronological in the description, I think it's going to be really good in a way to read because it'll be nice to see a reflection on what's actually happening there. And we'll see what the rest of the book is like. At, at least I like the idea that it parallels the sort of history that was going on and will give us a little bit of a bird's eye view. The author was a bit of an an early feminist at the time. She did have uh, she did have some other political views that I think will be interesting to see whether or not they actually came out in the book. But she, which I will will find out. But she did advocate women's suffrage, and that was something which, at least at that time, was still relatively controversial. So a lot going on there. That leads us into the 10th book, which is The Kingdom Around the Corner, 
by Coningsby Dawson. I hope I'm saying that right. This is a novel really looking actually the men returning from World War One uh, and dealing with coming home, obviously with with we'd call PTSD. I think back then they just called it shell shock and dealing with what it's like to go over there, fight in the trenches for a while, and then come home and pretend that everything's all right. It may be depressing. I don't know how that book's going to go. It's certainly not a romance and it's not a discussion of socio-political discussions between the the aristocracy and the poor. So it, it'll be different little spice in our in our year reading. I think that you and I were both expecting more world war discussion. Yeah, absolutely. But but it's possible that you're only just gonna now start seeing it because it does take time for people to write books, for people to edit books, for books to be published and then books to be sold. And we're really not far off armistice here at, at this stage in game. Maybe you and I are just very used to the Twitter, Facebook, I want it now. There's no reason there shouldn't be a video of exactly what happened 30 seconds later on my phone. And and for us, the concept of things taking a year and a half to really write down and retype and then move to print just sounds crazy. But maybe that's why we're just going to start seeing stuff trickle in here in 1921. I haven't looked forward to 1922 yet. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I, I was thinking the same thing. What I did notice is one or two of these books were either first published in 1920 or were sort of manuscripts in 1920. So a lot of them were written before the official conclusion or, or right around a, a time when it was still becoming public knowledge. Certainly they didn't have the details and or it didn't affect their lives in quite the way that we would expect it to have in some ways. And I thought that was interesting. But I do think you're right that we'll start seeing more of this. One thing I also note with some of these authors, which I really wasn't expecting, there's two authors in this list that are actually Canadian. And this author is a Canadian, and he only came to the United States a couple times. But the fact that there was such a blend, as a matter of fact, there were a couple authors in here as well who were from the northern United States. One guy is in Michigan. Uh, certainly, it's like the New York to New Hampshire area too, where quite a few of them come from. So they have this very unique way of looking at things. And it kind of got me thinking, yeah, we're used to American bestsellers from American authors, or at least that's what I came into it thinking. And quite a few of them were not. There was a lot of cross-pollination, certainly between Canada and the United States. But I'm in some ways glad to see this because we know some of the history and we know the results of World War I. We also know some of the the overarching results of World War One. You know, we're coming up on the Great Depression. We're coming up on some of the elements of more financial crashes. There was a big one in 1918. There was a big one in 1910. There was another one that happened right after this. And then, of course, all those things leading to World War II. So I've got to say from the historical perspective, I'm really interested to see how these tie together because they wouldn't have known it at the time. So here are these authors drawing these themes in a way where we can kind of see where the country's headed, but we don't necessarily see it from their pop culture view. And in my mind, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, six months ago, maybe a year ago, people were bemoaning the loss of the Kardashians on E. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? That's really not the big conversation right now. So <laughs> it probably won't be for the foreseeable future. I'm really interested in seeing that because it's a parallax view of the novels. Having said all that, I'm really looking forward to it again. So those are our 10 novels. Again, we'll read nine of them. We'll skip the Zane Grey novel. We will find something else to put in. We'll look at some different novels that were published at the same time.
So looking over this book list for 1921, it seems a lot of the themes are continuing from what we saw in 1920. I think you're seeing female protagonists and maybe women trying to find their role in the world, which is clearly changing. And whether that's from the world war we just went through, whether it was just changing themes of the time. So we're seeing a lot more of that than I thought we would. And maybe I'm wrong. It, it just I was expecting more of a mixed bag, but it seems to be overwhelming discussions with, with strong women protagonists, something I think you don't actually necessarily see right now. You don't see nearly as many strong female protagonists in literature, at least the best-selling literature, if you look at what's best-selling right now, as you did then. <laughs> yeah, I think the Tomb Raider effect has really ruined that concept. No, I, you know – as we were discussing here today, it struck me that suffragettes were huge at the time, this whole women's movement for votes, because they had only just come out of that, right? Women ha had not really fully fledged, had the right to vote, much less actually involvement in this way. So I guess I'm not surprised that it's happening now in the books. I'm surprised that I hadn't thought about it before, because as much as I've talked about historical context, I totally blanked on that. It's good to sort of refresh it. Although I hope you know, and actually, I will reverse for for a minute. Some of the books we read the last time around, I've actually come to a newfound appreciation for the inestimable author of Pollyanna because she did have a couple defined female characters in there. I still think towards the end, and I'm hoping to see more of that in some of these rather than just the cookie cutter damsel in distresses. Yeah, I agree. Some themes I think I'm seeing continuing, perhaps divorce. I remember being surprised when divorce first popped up. Even on our first book, uh, Great Impersonation, there was discussion of divorce being very taboo, but starting to be more common. And then we saw it in almost every book that we read. Divorce was at least a theme. And it appears that's going to be a theme in at least half of the books we're going to look at this year. Surprised by that. Another theme you and I have discussed is this country versus city kind of approach of a lot of people are moving to the city, but is the city the source of all good ideas? Or do you need, is the city really corrupting ideas? And you have to go back to the country to find truth. That popped up a few times last year. It may pop up a couple of times this year, just looking at my quick summaries here. Finally, as you mentioned, uh, World War One and what its effect on the authors here is. I don't know, as you were just saying, if we're seeing the authors who were not as affected by the war publishing and we're going to see more authors who were in the war showing up a little later, but there are clearly some ramifications. We have two books here that specifically discuss the world war and their ramifications on the protagonists or at least the characters therein. What else have you noticed you're seeing continue on? This idea of globalization so you can clearly see a schism between some of the books that we've read in the past and some of the books that focused more on the world around them and then some of them that were very internal to the United States and particularly with regards to the great movement West. And you can see that I think in these books continuing, I'm curious to see where I end up. There's a little bit more of an international flair to some of these in the sense that they're clearly worldly people and they're people who are involved in things that are a little bit larger than just their own sort of pedestrian viewpoints. And then there are some that are very inwardly focused, which I'm, I'm curious to see as well. But I, uh, you know, for instance, The Kingdom Round the Corner, like you mentioned, it was a novel about men returning to London. So that couldn't be further away in some ways from the Westerns that we've read. But I think that schism is probably either going to conjoin together the more we read these, where we start to see more international efforts coming to bear on even basic Americana, or they're going to grow further away and some of these books are going to become 
much, much more just about one or two characters. So I'm curious to see where that leads us, frankly. Yeah, I think we have a very interesting bag here of books all over the place. Not quite as wide of a collection as I was hoping for, but at the same time, we will be reading our first romance novel. And I'm very excited about getting into that. So we'll see what the year brings. I will say again, we have nine books here. There will be 11 more episodes this year. So we'll be looking for at least two books to fill those additional episodes. If anyone listening to this podcast has any recommendations from something in the 1920s, 1921, or earlier, please let us know. Well, that just about wraps up for tonight. Join us next month when we will review our first book of 1921, Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. A link to the book, as well as our contact information, can be found in the podcast description. Special thanks to our podcast host, Red Circle. To the Joy Drops for the intro and end credit music. And most especially to the Gutenberg Project. And until next month, thank you and good night. Good night.